morning. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we thank you for your wonderful word. Lord, your word is precious. It brings us life. And Lord, we want to ask this morning that your word penetrates deep into our hearts. Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, well, I wonder how you're, you're viewing the world right now. Perhaps, like me, you see the world as a, as a particularly unstable place, even perhaps with a distant thud of war drums. Perhaps you consider that you live under the thumb of an unelected foreign power and you're desperate for the nation to get out from underneath and make its own way. Somewhere, somehow, any sense of national unity has evaporated. The country is already crudely divided on geographical lines, roughly north-south. Your society is multi-ethnic, but the truth is that even among the people whose forebears go back centuries, there are historic grudges that have never quite been forgotten. You look at the centres of power... And you seem to be ruled by a self-interested elite whose main competence is feathering their own nests. And worst of all, God is a million miles away from national life and a minority interest for many. Now, you've probably worked out that I'm slightly leading you on um, because I'm not making a political statement or comment about Britain at the end of 2018, but first century Israel. So although there are maybe resonances with our own country, all of those things, every single one of them applied then to their country as well. As we examine the scriptures this morning, it's useful to set the historical and political scene, but it's probably more important to try and put our shoes into the characters of a story. If you want to really understand a scripture, the best thing you can possibly do is to try and inhabit the shoes of the person that you're looking at. And when you do, when you do step into their skins, and ask the questions that they would have asked, attempt to feel their longings, their excitement, their heartache, and see the world through their eyes, you discover that not only are the general circumstances roughly similar to our own, but their hearts are the same as ours. They are just like us. So would you join me this morning for a few minutes in the sandals of John the Baptizer, we're Anglicans, we can't call him a Baptist, can we? (laughs) So he's a, for most of us, John the Baptist or Baptizer is a peripheral figure who sort of buzzes in and out of the narratives and it's quite easy not to take a lot of notice of him. So we're going to take a bit of an exception this morning. We join today's gospel passage just as the ministry of Jesus is scaling up. Because up to now, Jesus has been doing pretty much everything himself. He's been preaching to crowds, and his disciples have been sitting there um, as kind of part of the cast. And he's healed people, but they've not done anything. 
Well, now Jesus has started to move them out. And in the previous chapter, he sent them out two by two to the surrounding towns and the countryside. And actually, it's all gone pretty well. It's all gone really well, unless you're John. Because John is incarcerated in a dungeon at the bottom of the Machaerus Fortress. It's a remote eagle's nest of a place on the Jordanian side of the Dead Sea, overlooks the eastern plains. Can we have the, the, the next slide up? And I should have this here. Um, so I haven't got a very clear picture on, on the wall. Actually, it's better behind me, isn't it? So that is the Machaerus Fortress. So it's kind of on its own hill up here. And you can see the ruins. And down here, if you go onto Google Earth, you can actually see the tourist signs saying, please come in and pay your money here. <laughs> Next slide. And this is a, a mock-up of, uh, of what it might have looked like in those days. So a developed little fort um, with, uh, with nice bits. And uh, they've located what they think is the dungeon where John probably stayed. So he's there because he dared to criticise Herod Antipas's marriage to Herodias. Herod Antipas is a local ruler of an area. It's not, um, a, not a whole country. It's just an area that he's responsible for under the Romans. And he's called a, a tetrarch. You might have seen that, um, that comment because it actually appears in the, uh, the, uh, the, the narrative that we're going to see read tonight as well. So the tetrarchs are governors of an area that was split up under uh, the great King Herod. So Herod the Great had a very large patch to look after, but when he died, uh, the Romans really didn't fancy anyone else, um, and they, they parceled off the, the land amongst some of his sons. So we're going to have a look at the, uh, the next slide. So that purple bit is one of Antipas's territories there. That was another. And so you can see that it's geographically complex. Where my pointer is, uh, is showing the little red dot, that is the Sea of Galilee. Down here is the, is the Dead Sea. Jerusalem is there. And the, the fortress is just on the edge of the Dead Sea. So uh, you actually had to travel between these territories. And when you read of Jesus' ministry, you will find him going from territory to territory. Sometimes that's made explicit. Sometimes it isn't. Uh, that white area, for example, is called the Decapolis. I know you're not going to be able to read any of the actual words. But that's the, the so-called ten cities of the Decapolis who were semi-autonomous. They weren't actually ruled by Philip, who ruled that area. Jesus didn't have much interaction with him, and it didn't belong to Herod Antipas either. Um, 
So sometimes Jesus would slip across the border or row across the lake um, to get away. Anyway, John's baptizing was somewhere on around this border here, so halfway up between the Dead Sea and the Sea of, of Galilee. But it was within Herod Antipas's territory. So Herod Antipas could get his hands on John. And the problem was that it was all a bit unsavory, really, but um, his wife, Herodias, was originally married to his brother, Philip, up in the north. And she decided that uh, she fancied Herod Antipas a bit more. They got together, so the relationship was adulterous. And in any case, in Leviticus, you are not supposed to marry your brother's wife. And John pointed it out. She refused to marry a polygamist. So Herod was already married to a, a lady of Nabataean origin. She was a princess, the daughter of the king of Nabatea. Uh, Nabatea is an area that includes roughly where Petra is, if you know that, because it's an ancient site. She decided that if Herod was moving on, it was probably easier for him to kill her than to divorce her, and she did a runner back to her father, who was not best pleased and actually there was a consequence for that because they made war on on, uh, Herod Antipas within a a very few years and Josephus records that a lot of the people of the area thought that it was actually vengeance uh, for the God's vengeance that is to say for Herod Antipas's um, treatment of John Okay, so let's get a bit personal here. John is stuck away in the bottom of a dungeon. There, it's dark. There is little natural light. As a prisoner, he's on starvation rations and perpetually hungry. It stinks because there are no flushing toilets. Chances are that the toilet is the furthest corner of his, of his cell. There are probably rats scuttling around in the night. It may be damp. He may be chained. But worst of all, he has far too much time to think. Day drags in to featureless week, and he loses track of time. Remember also that John is only a young man. He's in his prime. He's only about six months older than Jesus. And he knows it's likely that he's on death row and never coming out. Because you don't criticize despots like the Herod family without serious consequences. Someday he'd probably hope to marry, to raise a family, to watch them become adults bounce grandchildren on his knee and grow old with a wife. And all of that hope is circling the drain. And he wants to know, has it been worth it? Was it all a gigantic mistake? 
maybe none of those childhood prophecies were real. You know, the ones that we may be reading tonight, I haven't looked over all the readings. But like his mother Elizabeth told him about, with Mary's visit, her cousin, his own father, Zechariah's angelic encounter, and John's own God-appointed destiny. And he needs to know whether Jesus is really authentic. And he reaches out to Jesus for reassurance. Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus' response is actually fuller than you might realise at first glance. Tell him what you've seen, he says. And he quotes directly from Isaiah 35 that we read before the gospel passage. The blind see, the deaf hear, the mute are speaking, the lame walk. Amazing stuff. You don't see that so much these days because if you've got club foot or congenital dislocated hip, they have orthopods, orthopedic surgeons who will, who will put that right for you. Didn't then, not at all. So Jesus says, yes, John, is brilliantly real because bodies are being restored to full working order. Social injustices are being righted. The poor are being made spiritually rich. And Satan's handiwork is being reversed. And nothing like this has ever happened before, certainly on this sort of scale. Now, Isaiah 35 is pretty clearly an end times messianic passage in other words only the messiah could inaugurate the renewal of planet earth and the reversal of the fall and john would have understood this perfectly because he knew his bible they did they studied it as children so let's try something if i say to you a rolling stone you will finish it by saying, no moss. And if I say, a stitch in time, you will say, saves nine. Rabbis did that with whole passages. So that's what they did. So Jesus isn't just saying what he's been up to and what the disciples, John's disciples, have seen with their own eyes. He's actually evoking the whole of Isaiah 35 as well. And what he's saying is the process has started. This is phase one, a taster, and there's so much more to come. If we go back to Isaiah 35, what we read is the future restoration of earth to its pre-fall state. It foresees a time when deserts will be reclaimed. The planet will be reforested. That sounds like good news, doesn't it? That's what the glory of Lebanon bit is about, by the way. And above all, there is no sin. Gladness and joy, that candle, gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Wow, oh, that just sounds terrific to me. Who wants to be overtaken by joy? I'd like to put it to you that if Jesus comes again, 
and fails to return the earth to planet Eden, as planet earth was originally intended, then in some measure Satan would have won a victory. And that's unthinkable. Satan's defeat will be total, not partial. Now, um, this is a bit of a shameless aside, so hands up here, sorry, my confession. But I'd like to show you a couple of slides because some of the technology for restoring the earth is actually here now. Next slide. Okay, this is a bit of China. So um, do you see that it's barren as anything? It is just completely ravaged. There is no vegetation there. Now let's do the, the next slide. And that's what it looks like within a year. And have you heard of the Green Wall of China? Maybe not. You heard of the Great Wall of China, but not the Green Wall of China. And actually, I think it's Mali where they're building a, a green barrier against the Sahara as well. And not only is it stopping the Sahara from encroaching, it's actually reclaiming some of it as well, which is just absolutely uh, amazing. And there's, there are ways and means and reasons why that that can be done. But it's small scale. Imagine what will happen when Jesus returns and restores planet Earth. Now, Jesus answers John's deepest fears. He lifts him to 30,000 feet and gives him a panoramic view of the whole thing of the earth restored and John's worries are resolved. So the core truth that we need to pick up is that Jesus arrived in the middle of an ugly mess which is only cosmetically different from today. Personal salvation and restoration are within touching distance. That's what it means when Jesus said, the kingdom of God is near you. It's adjacent to you. It's right next to you. You can reach out and you can touch it. It's that close. God can rescue anyone, anywhere, no matter how dark things look. And once on the inside of a person's heart, Jesus will give order and meaning and hope and purpose to the most fractured life. And there are many people who will give testimony to that. This is why Jesus came, and it includes you. And that is the terrific news. He loves you. People sometimes wonder whether God can be bothered. Yes, he can. And he loves you. There are no exceptions. So let him be the wind in your sails and the fire in your heart, as the song goes. And if you go home today with nothing else, my job will be done. But maybe you're thinking, well, I'm not in difficulty. Life is quite calm at the moment. It's all pretty ordered. I'm okay. Well, I've got three little things for you as well. Firstly, even prophets are flesh and blood. Never assume that Christian leaders have no needs. They all do. 
whether that's home group leaders or the Archbishop of Canterbury. So point number one, be an encourager. Second lesson is be prayerful. In the eyes of Jesus, John was great, the greatest, even though he never did a miracle that we're told of. At least I can't think of one. What made John great? I think that the secret was that he never changed course under intense pressure. Now, we could probably do a whole other talk on that, but that's what I think. And I think it comes from a deep devotional life. And that doesn't happen by accident. You don't chance upon a deep devotional life. You have to find it and you have to work at it and you have to be persistent. So second point, be prayerful, be an encourager, be prayerful. And the last point is be open, cultivate friends. You need them in places, in place, with, before dark times arrive, and you're occupying your own private dungeon. And if you're going through a time like that, you really need your friends. We all do, but especially friends who can pray with you and for you. John's friends came through for him when he needed it. Who is your support network? If you lack one. Join a home group. So be an encourager. Be prayerful. Be open. So this Christmas season, we have every possible reason to be hopeful. God is with us. Emmanuel.